Tanya Avrith. And I'm Holly Clark, host of the Infuse Classroom Podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of each individual host. Be sure to check out all of our other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com and get ready because the learning begins in three, two, one. Welcome back for another episode of the Leader of Learning podcast, the show where educators can come find inspiration to transform education through effective leadership. I'm your host, Dan Krinas. Let's get started. Leaders of Learning, welcome back for episode 52 of the Leader of Learning podcast. I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. Season three is really shaping up to be something special as some of the biggest names in education join us for conversations here on the show. We have two of the biggest names in this episode, and that is because I got to speak to the authors of the recently published Innovate Inside the Box, George Kuros and Katie Novak. That'll be coming up in just a couple of minutes. Before we get there, I did want to shout out some recent leader of learning love that we got on social media. Ed Salmon, my friend Ed, on Twitter said another excellent discussion, Dan, and that is as he shared episode 50, Leading Through Coaching, that I did with Danny Bauer. Uh, Another friend of the show, Brian Costello, you run a great show, Dan. Keep up the great stuff. Thank you to Ed and Brian for those shout-outs on Twitter. We also had a couple of retweets and reposts uh, on Instagram from Professor Denise, and on Instagram, her handle is Professor Mad Will. Uh, she shared episode 51, said Monday morning, listening to Leader of Learning interview at Ask Miss Q, and that was as she shared episode 51. We also got a retweet from, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Indrit Vukai, or Vukaj, who says, hey, joyful leaders and Principal Kubiak, listen in as we chat about leadership, social influence, and our doctoral journey so far. So that was sharing the tweet that Saba, my guest on episode 51, shared herself on Twitter. So back to matters at hand in episode 52, I was so excited to have a chat with George Karos and Katie Novak, authors of Innovate Inside the Box. You know, if you're like me, George's first book, The Innovator's Mindset, was a huge inspiration and motivation on my career as an educator. And I was so glad that he followed up that first book with the newest one, Innovate Inside the Box. And it was creative and inspiring to bring Katie on to give a different spin, a different take on things. She is a UDL or Universal Design for Learning expert. And it really made the book a very interesting read as both of them traded on and off sections and put their own spin on exactly what that means to innovate inside the box. So here is my interview with George and Katie. Leaders of Learning, it is my privilege to bring on in this episode the authors of the recently published Innovate Inside the Box. And uh, actually, this is the first time I've had two guests, but I really appreciate you guys joining me. And if you could, one by one, introduce yourselves, tell everybody who you are, where you are, and what you do. I guess we'll start with George. Hey, I'm George Gross. I'm actually uh, living in Edmonton, Alberta. I'm actually from Humboldt, Saskatchewan. 
And um, yeah, I'm right now an author and a speaker, and I've taught basically everything from K to 12, vice principal, principal, works in central office. Uh, yeah, I just have the privilege to be able to travel around and uh, connect and work with schools basically all over North America, some in Europe and some in South America. So uh, yeah, it's it's a pretty blessed uh, um work that I do. And I was actually lucky to um, meet Katie Novak um, on um, at an event. And we just clicked right away. I think we've only actually seen each other for maybe a total of an hour in our lifetime. But uh, she kind of talked me into writing this book. So I'll turn it over to Katie. Yeah. And now we're best friends for life. You can't get rid of me. Best friends. Best friends. No matter how heavy I breathe. <laughs> So I'm Katie Novak. Um, I am also a consultant and a speaker and an author. Um, I do that point two of my time, um, and that's how I got to meet George. I predominantly speak about universal design for learning and how to create systems that really support all students in inclusive environments. And then for my other point eight life, I am an assistant superintendent of schools in a school district outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, excellent. Listen, um, this book has been out less than a month. It's uh, already experiencing quite a bit of success. I'm, I'm looking right now at Amazon. It's ranked uh, fifth in educational administration, all the way up to third in experimental education methods. I don't even really know what that means, but uh, it sounds cool. And I suppose that's because innovation is in the title. I don't know. But uh, let's talk about innovating inside the box. Uh, of course, this is at least part and parcel due to uh, the OG innovation book by George, Innovator's Mindset. Um, the idea, though, about innovating inside the box. Can you talk about that a little bit, please? Yeah. So actually, as you say, Dan, the, uh, this is a follow-up to the Innovator's Mindset. It actually came out of a um, not only interacting with Katie and uh, Katie really um, kind of showing how UDL ties into so many of the concepts of, you know, what I talk about in the interviewer's mindset and how there's such a beautiful blend together. Um, but actually a comment that I got on Amazon that was a negative review um, on innovators mindset. And uh, the, the comment was basically that, Hey, this is all great. These are really great ideas, but there's not enough stuff here for teachers. And so I kind of held on to that comment for a while and just kind of said, you know, at some point, you know, I'd like to do that, but um, I don't know if I'm the person to be able to do this. And then uh, when Katie and I uh, connected, it just tapped in so beautifully um, to, you know, really where I talk about kind of why these things are important. But Katie, just with all of her experience and the role that she's in currently and all the amazing work that's happening in her district, um, just really giving strategies, you know, how to make things happen in the classroom. So um, the notion of innovation inside the box is really understanding that there's constraints, um, you know, whether it's funding. Um, whether it's, you know, that we have to teach, you know, we have standardized testing, we have a curriculum we have to follow and just kind of acknowledging that those things exist. And basically for waiting for someone to change that for us to do good things for our students, we're going to be waiting forever. So it's really how do you work within those constraints that are there and really kind of create your own solution um, to help our kids be innovators, to really think differently about their own learning, to really develop them as not as not just, you know, kids that can, you know, learn things but actually do something with their learning, uh, but still do that within the constraints of education. And I think that um, this has been uh, the work that it, when Katie gets a little bit into the work that's happening in her district, uh, it's been really proven that you can, it's not um, innovation or the curriculum, it's actually how you connect the two that is where we can do some really powerful learning um, while we're still working on changing what the box looks like. And, and you know, like I said, um, there's a lot of people doing great work on really focusing on how to change those constraints, but um, but we're also 
Katie said this to me and it just really resonated is that the grade three students that are in grade three this year, that this is their one year in grade three. So how do we make sure that's the best experience possible? And so um, that's something that's always stuck with me um, in my conversation with Katie. And I think that's kind of the whole premise of the book. Yeah. You know, one of the things that uh, it says in the book that I think jumped out at me in terms of innovating inside the box, it says uh, the system or box you work within may be the very reason you need to innovate. No matter what constraints you're dealing with, you you can still do incredible things for your students and yourself. I think that uh, sort of speaks to the point that you were just raising. And I, I found it interesting that you led off by talking about that negative comment. And I think I've heard about, I've heard you speak to this in some of your recent talks. Um, both of you guys share quite a bit in the book. And I feel like so much of what you talk about in terms of innovation comes from experiences like failures or other opportunities where you've really been able to reflect. And of course, you uh, you speak to how much reflection is and needs to be a huge part of uh, education, both in teachers and students alike. Uh, George, you tell a story in the book about a student, former student named Kyle. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience? Well, um, well Kyle actually um, is one of my students at a school I taught at several years ago. And uh, just he's having a moment. And uh, like I, I kind of talked about in the book that I'm very forward thinking, but I'm also very old school. And just out of nowhere, he just yelled out my name and he goes, George, right in the middle of class. And uh, and so I asked him to step outside and talk to him. And um, I told him that um, when, you know, when he was 18 years old and graduated high school, he can call me George all you like. But until that time, I expect him to call me Mr. Kroos. And, uh, and uh, basically left that school, went to another school district. And four years later, he reaches out to me on Facebook, like basically three minutes after he turned 18. And said, "Hey George, how are you, George?" And he just used my name over and over again. So, uh, really funny moment. So, the whole premise of that story is that our words stick with our the, the words and actions that our kids see from us. You know, in school as teachers, can stick with them for a lifetime. Like this kid literally held on to this for four years, so he could, uh, you know, you know, use my name um, and not get in trouble for it. And it actually led to. Um, Another story from um, a teacher came up to me talking about uh, something that he had said to a student that, you know, he regrets and uh, basically having a, a bad moment and just saying like, you know, I could teach a rock better than I could, you know, easier than you. And then the kid next day showed up in class he said, and he put a rock on his desk and said, well, prove it. And, and basically that teachers like carried that rock for basically 25 plus years of this career as a reminder of how important our words are. And so I think that, you know, looking at those moments and, you know, obviously every one of us, um, you know, as educators wants to be a hundred percent and never have those bad moments, but it's not a reality. And um, I think um, uh, my friend Megan Lawson talked about that, that, you know, we can't strive for perfection, but we, we strive for excellence, but understanding that, you know, vulnerability and, and screwing up is part of the process. And so how do we learn from that? And so I think, you know, that's really, you know, something that Katie and I are both really focused on is that, um, that the ideas that we share, none of them can be carbon copied because everyone's context is so different, but um, we want people to try and be willing to take some risk and, and do some different things, you know, but the, the pursuit is always to be our best for kids. And like I said, we're not a hundred percent, none of us ever are, but um, we always are striving for excellence, you know, in our classrooms. And so I think that's, that's kind of the, the, the big thing that we, we try to focus on. And I think both Katie and I embody, cause we share a lot of personal stories about our own struggles, um, so that people know that we're, we're part of this process with them. It's not, you know, 
we're the experts and, you know, we're conveying all this wisdom. It's that, Hey, we're, we're all doing this together to do our best to help kids. Yeah. I really appreciated that uh, about what I read from the book that both of you guys really shared a lot. Katie, do you have an experience that has really stuck with you? Kind of like the ones that George shared with that student, Kyle? I I mean, I have so many of them. Um, You know, one of the things that I, I always used to say to kids is at the end of the year, I would ask them instead of doing a final for their themselves, I would literally pass out a copy of all of the standards that I was required to teach that year. And so the last year that I was teaching, I was a seventh grade English teacher. And so I literally took a copy of all the standards that I was required to teach. And I said, okay, here's your final, like get into groups, go through all of these. And I want you to assign me a grade for each of them, but you have to be able to support that grade. So if you look at a standard, you know, say, you know, I understand how, you know, complex characters interact with plot and setting, for example, and you're going to tell me that like, yes, I, I totally get it. Like, then you're going to give me an A, but then you have to tell me why, like what was memorable? What did we do? And it's like, oh, remember when we read this book or when we get to do this activity. Um, and at the end of the, the year, I'd say, if you're going to give me, if you're going to give me an F, which means that everyone in the group is a little bit murky on like what the language means, or you don't feel like you can do it, then I want you to tell me that as well. And so all of them really worked in like isolated groups and they're working on this for a long period. And so I said, okay, so, you know, today we went through kind of this, you know, all of the language standards. So like, tell me, you know, how I did. And I still remember this kid, he stood up and he's like, I, I'm not trying to be mean. And like, you know, when a kid, a 13 year old starts off with, I'm not trying to be mean, like it's going to dark places. And so he said to me, I'm not trying to be mean, but like, we had to give you an F for language standard. And I still remember it was five and it was to explain the function of phrases and clauses in general and their function in specific sentences. Now, if you're not an English teacher, you're like, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm talking gobbledygook, but they were like, you, you did a, uh, you know, you did so great everywhere else, but like, we are concerned that you actually don't know what that is. And I was like dying laughing. And I was like, no, I definitely know what that is. Like, I promise you, I know what that is. Like, you know, I have a very strong background in linguistics. I know the difference between a phrase and a clause. I know what their function is. And they were like, but I don't really think that you do. And I was like, but wait, 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 what do you, what are you talking about? You don't think that I do. And all the other groups were like, actually, we failed you on that one too. And it was like, they weren't like, it wasn't like a conspiracy because they weren't talking together. Um, But it was like this moment where I was like, guys, am I that bad at teaching grammar? And they're all like, you're really bad at that. And it was just this really cool moment that I'm like, why didn't you tell me? Like, have I been bad at it all year? And they're like, but you're so good at other things, Novak. It's okay. But like, yeah, you're really, really bad at that. Um, And it was just like this, this moment where I'm like, oh my gosh, like a hundred different seventh graders knew that like my grammar game was off um, and no one ever told me, but it's, it's just that like, the things that kids pick up on is like, you know, this concept of like, oh no, things are going really well. Um, you know, I'm sure it's going well. Like when you actually, you know, have kids open up, um, you know, obviously for George, it wasn't as invited necessarily for, you know, but, but they pick up on everything and they know when they're getting a raw deal and they know when they're getting a high quality education and they know when they're being asked to innovate and they know when they're asked to regurgitate. And so we really have to kind of honor their process and allow them to share their experiences. You know, it's funny. I'm sitting here and I can think of, 
have very similar experience uh, experiences that I share with both of you from a little bit earlier in my career. Uh, George, I had a student very much like Kyle. I am, uh, as they say, follically challenged. And he would uh, run by my classroom and open the door and yell, Baldy! And uh, yeah, we didn't, we didn't get off to such a, a hot start that year, but uh, ended up building a pretty decent relationship throughout the school year. And Katie, I think I was one of the few teachers that I really knew who was giving similar, um, you know, forms as feedback that the students could essentially give to me in terms of my uh, instruction. And I don't remember whether it was my first year or second year teaching, but it was within the first two years, some of the comments started to form this pattern of, uh, Mr. Krynas, you're you're a little bit moody. <laughs> and I was like, really? I am? Like, I I don't know. I didn't think I was. And I, I kind of chalked it up to, well, I think that means that when we really like to, you know, have fun and let loose a little, that's great. But also I'm really serious about getting the work done. And sometimes it, it might be a little confusing when I flip that switch, but uh, I think that's what they meant, or at least I hope that's what they meant. But yeah, it was really, uh, it was really a great opportunity to reflect on my practices. And I love that you guys brought that up in the book as well. Um, another thing that you bring up fairly early on in the book is this idea that, uh, there's a big difference, let's say, between engagement and empowerment. Can you guys speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. I want to hear what so, you So and when we're talking about UDL, um, there's three principles of, of universal design. And it's essentially, um, you know, really, really challenging educators to look at the design of learning experiences so all students can can really equally be a part of the, you know, accessing those experiences and feeling engaged with those experiences. And the three principles of UDL um, are really reminding educators that there have to be really flexible pathways in engaging students, teaching students, and then you know, assessing students. And so we say that we want to design lessons so that we're providing multiple means of engagement. So really providing multiple pathways for students to engage. Um, we're going to provide multiple means of representation, which is multiple pathways for students to actually build understanding and content through teaching, and then to provide multiple means of action and expression, which is like numerous ways for students to act on what they know, to share their learning. And when you're looking at engagement, there's actually three different um, aspects of engagement in the UDL literature. And that is if we really want to engage students with equal parts attention and commitment. And so we want to get their attention by recruiting their interest. And that's really surface level. Like I can get kids interested in almost anything with like a decent hook. You know, I just need to get their attention. And then it goes into the ability to sustain effort and persistence and the ability to self-regulate. So, you know, I want to get their attention so that when things get challenging, they are willing to continue to put in effort and that sometimes required some ability to cope. So when you're thinking about engagement in UDL, you're thinking about the willingness to stick with something that you're being asked to do. Empowerment takes that a step further by saying, it's not only like I am, I am willing to stick with this to kind of see it through the goal, is I am driven to like blow this out of the park. So engagement is more, okay, here's the goal. I am interested. I have access points. I have the tools I need to continue to work hard and I have the tools I need to cope so I can meet the goal. Empowerment is like engagement on educational steroids, which is that I am engaged, but I am really internally driving this, this learning experience 
for myself as opposed to, you know, I'm going to follow along with this experience. So, you know, you can be engaged and not necessarily really empowered to kind of go beyond, um, but you cannot be empowered without being engaged. So we're trying to basically say, yes, we want students to be engaged. We want them to be interested. We want them to sustain effort and we want them to self-regulate. But in addition to that, we really want them to be able to drive these experiences in places beyond what a teacher could even imagine. And I think that's a, this is a um, this is a conversation that Katie and I had because of the I don't want to say I don't know if I'd say traditional, but the notion of like how engagement in the notion of UDL really looks like the way I talk about the importance of empowerment. And I think one of the reasons that we kind of distinguish between the two is that you know when I'm thinking about you know starting off as a teacher and like engagement was a thing, and it was all about what the teacher did for the student, really. And um, there was sometimes we have this conversation about, you know, kids being active in their learning, but a lot of times they're, they might be active, but they have no interest. And I think that when we talk about empowerment, um, we're really trying to distinguish between, you know, like, like, like Katie said, there's the, the, the two, it's not like it's an either or scenario that when you're empowering students, they're actively obviously engaged in their learning, but they also have more own ownership. They have more agency through the process. And it doesn't mean that you're always creating, but do I actually have any say um, on the types of books that I get to read or the type of, you know, as Katie was talking about the type of, you know, um, things I get to create, um, you know, in my work that represent and, and showcase what I've actually learned. And so I think that we really kind of wanted to, to distinguish those to really get people to think about, you know, that it's it's going beyond simply what the teacher does for the student and really helping the teacher guide the student and finding a pathway for themselves because that's a skill that goes way beyond what we can ever do that you know goes beyond the importance of school obviously it goes on to like what how we you know do how we you know create our own opportunities in life and similar to uh, something that I've discussed here on the show recently, uh, based on a book that I just finished up uh, not too long ago, The Coaching Habit, I think uh, you guys talk a lot about asking questions. Uh, as a matter of fact, I took a, a little excerpt from the book. It says that, you know, how can you empower students when you feel stuck within a certain curriculum that one simple way to, quote, innovate inside the box is as simple as shifting your focus and your learner's focus from getting the right answers to asking better questions. I think that's such an amazing point, and it's one that I personally have really stuck to uh, as we start this school year in my role as an instructional coach. Even though I'm not in the classroom, I still think it, it has a lot of value even with uh, adult learning as well. Uh, sticking with sort of that theme of you know getting to know your learners and, and asking the right questions and, and really um, letting them sort of sit in the, the driver's seat of their own of their own education in the book. And I believe it was George, you used the term, you said data driven is the stupidest <laughs> term in education. Yeah. Uh, uh, can you expand that, that thought process? Yeah. A little bit? Well, I, and I get a lot of, I, I get a lot of uh, questions about that. It sparks a lot of conversation, which is actually is kind of the point um, to actually kind of jolt people a little bit because the, the term data driven is, is thrown around. And uh, Katie and I were actually just talking about this with a, someone else about um when when people are using the term data driven and and i actually like legitimately i'm not a fan of the term because not because of the intent of the people that are saying it because 
you know, my, my belief is always the educators, you know, people that are working within education, they're doing everything they can to serve kids. And I think, you know, people that talk about data driven, that's something that um, they're really trying to do is to help kids. It's more on what teachers hear. And I think that when you hear the term data driven, and I'll tell you, I, I make that statement speaking at conferences. And if it's a teacher conference, I usually get like applause. And if I get, um, if I'm at a principal conference or a superintendent conference, it's like jaws open, drop to the floor because they've said it so often. And a lot of times when teachers hear the term data driven, they're just like, okay, hey, it's all about the score. That's all that matters is like, let's get these scores. We've got to get these scores up. And so what we talk about in the book is the idea of learner driven evidence informed is that we have to know the students in front of us, who they are, what makes them tick, you know, really developing um, thinking about them as people. And then we use evidence. And the reason I, I talk about the term evidence versus data is because the way data is perceived is basically, if I can't measure it and, and put a, a number on it, it's not valuable. Where evidence, you know, can be in the stories we tell, it can be in the extracurricular things that we do, but it can also be the tests and assignments that we take care of as well. And so really understanding the kids in front of us and using the evidence to support their learning. And so I think that's when, when I look at why I became a teacher is to help kids not to focus solely on scores, right? Like you want these, there's a lot of kids that could do well on a test, but if you ask them to, if they, do they really understand it two weeks later, um, the content, a lot of times they don't is this, they've done everything to do well on a test and cram in. And I think that we, we focus too often on test scores as opposed to really deep learning. And I think that if you do really deep learning by knowing the students in front of you, the tests will be fine. And I think that's something we got to really understand about the work that we're doing. I have to say, and, and I agree with you, uh, I think the word data is is uh, overused and, and maybe under uh, under understood. Does that make sense? Misunderstood. Um, and and I, I, to, to be honest, I think that now as a doctoral student uh, who is about to conduct my own uh, qualitative research, I think that I have a, a different and deeper understanding of the quote unquote softer data. So I kind of get it, but I think you're right. I think the word evidence makes a lot more sense because it's not just that quantitative statistical type of data that we always want to focus on with the students. And um, it, some people may still consider it data, other people not. But um, I do appreciate the fact that uh, the word evidence probably makes yeah, a lot more and, sense. And I actually, like Dan, I actually go through in the book, like the actual definition of the term data and how it actually is really the same as evidence, but it is the perception of the word that matters more than the definition. Because if I only, exactly. I, think that's, I think that's why we're trying to make that shift. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. So uh, the, the way the book is laid out, uh, it, it develops a lot of these ideas and then uh, you guys sort of trade on and off. And uh, I think that's when Katie really brings her expertise in with this UDL lens, so to speak, on, you know, like we already talked about engagement and empowerment and really creating super deep learning experiences and opportunities for students. Katie, if you could just take us back a little bit and explain UDL, uh, at least on a, on a basic level, so we can understand if we're not too familiar with that term yet. And then how does that fit in in terms of really designing powerful learning experiences? 
So I'm going to give you an analogy, which I, I use sometimes when I present, which is essentially imagine that you're having a dinner party and I'm going to bring 25 strangers over to your house. And your goal is to make sure that all of them not only have an amazing time, but have like a really well-balanced, delicious meal. Um, now in this scenario, would you ever in a billion years make a casserole? <laughs> no, no one would ever <laughs> a casserole. No. no, yeah, no. You not make a casserole. Okay, so here's the thing. But but in the 1970s, people made casseroles all the time. They would serve a lasagna. They would serve you know a beef stew. They would serve a pot roast. And it's essentially you're going to make one thing and you're going to plate it, and everybody gets the same thing on a plate. Now, if you were to do that now, and I were to invite 25 friends over. Um, why, like, what would be the hesitation of making a meat lasagna and putting it in front of everyone? You're assuming that everybody's going to like that, right? Well, not even like it is like, I can say that my, some people might not like it, but even more interestingly is that some people might not be able to eat that. They might not be able to yeah. access it. So you could have people who are vegan. You could have people who, um, have a lactose intolerant, a gluten sensitivity. Um, you know, then you have the eaters that don't have any of those things and they still can't eat it. And so the reality is, is when we design a lesson that is one size fits all or casserole like, we expect everyone to come forth to our classroom table and experience the same meal, you know, with the analogy is I know before even getting to know my students that that's a bad idea. Um, and so if I were to come over and say, I'm going to bring 25 people over to your house, I want them all to love what you're making. Um, you would put out something much more buffet like, like a taco bar or make your own pizza or, you know, there's some salads on the side. What you would do is you would provide options and choices and then everybody could kind of personalize their own meal. And the same exact thing is true in the classroom is you start with your goals. So my goal for your party was everyone has a great time. Everyone has a delicious meal. Um, our standards are actually designed that that way. Our goals are designed that way, you know, that students will understand and be able to explain um, the process of photosynthesis, that all students will understand in reading a book that complex characters interact with setting, um, that students will understand and you know how to um, to use a quadratic equation, for example. And so we have these goals, and those goals are really, really broad and open. And then what we generally do is we decide, well, this is the way that I'm going to get kids to this goal, assuming that all of them, quote unquote, like the way that we're doing it, and that quote unquote can access that, right? Um, and so you could end up serving a lasagna, and some kids are like, that's literally disgusting. I am not eating that, and then they're not going to eat. But the same thing happens in a classroom is, you know, if you haven't really thought ahead of time about how do I make this relevant and authentic to my students, you might have kids that are just like, this is so boring, I'm not paying attention. And then learning doesn't happen. And so what UDL is saying is, is that we, we can predict that one size fits all is not going to meet the needs of all students. And instead, we're going to think about what our goals are, and we're going to provide options and choices that will allow our students to get there. So in a typical high school science class, um, if I want all students to know about photosynthesis, I will likely, you know, either have them read about photosynthesis or watch a video about photosynthesis, or we'll all do some activity together. And there are probably a million ways that you could learn about the process of photosynthesis if you had access to technology and some really reputable scientific sites, um, or that if you were just allowed to kind of create your own lab. Um, and often we don't empower students to create those journeys. And so UDL is a reminder that says that when we design something in a one-size-fits-all way and expect all students to do the same thing, they will face barriers to either access or engagement. And to eliminate that, we provide pathways to empower students to create 
journeys that yes, will be challenging. Yes, will require them to sustain effort and persistence. Yes, will require them to self-regulate, but it will be worth doing because the process is one that they are personalizing and customizing for themselves. I love all that. And and a couple of things that I took away from the book, uh, almost, I would say, safely say that among the whole book, these are a couple of my biggest takeaways was when you started to really get into the ideal of UDL and that it's, uh, you know, not just that one size fits all. And, and here are a couple of, of uh, excerpts, let's say. So one, and I, and I apologize, I don't quite remember which of you wrote this, but one says my role as an educator became even more important when I stepped out of the spotlight because it required me to craft and personalize my message to all students instead of throwing it out in a one size fits all ball and hoping they all caught it. And another was the goal is not to develop our students as people who provide solutions to well-known problems. There's probably way too much of that in the world as it is. This is about helping students seek out problems that are meaningful to them and then finding ways to solve or respond to those issues. So again, becoming much more personalized and dare I say differentiated uh, for each individual student. And what was great is that you, you guys followed that up in the book with talking about risks and, uh, and that ever popular word, or it's becoming more and more popular now, failure too. So uh, bringing in that risk piece, how do you see that fitting into the equation? I think the when we talk about risk, and um, I, I give like a, a definition is that risk is moving from a comfortable average in pursuit of an unknown better, which is something that, you know, makes it much more attainable. Um, a lot of times when you hear the word risk, you're, you're basically thinking or insinuating danger. And the reality of it is that a lot of teachers take, you know, little tiny risks in their teaching learning every single day, um, trying something that they might not necessarily have done before, um, but they're seeing that a student struggles and um, with something and they're not just totally relating or, you know, relying on their past practice. They're trying to figure out new ideas. And I think for me, um, the, the other analogy that I make that is really important is that if you were not to try something different, there is a risk there as well but it actually has much could have much worse consequences when we don't you know try things that are different to you know because of the students that are you know are you know some of our students are struggling um what happens when we lose them and i think that's a, a really important uh, distinction in the work that we're actually trying to talk about is that we we, we have to see that we, we we get uncomfortable with trying we get comfortable with trying new things and i think that's something that you know teachers have to really focus on is that we've learned a lot in our practice, but you, we know that every day in a classroom is totally different. It's unpredictable um, what our students' needs are. And I think moving away from just trying things because we've known them is bad. And I actually, I make the distinction on, um, and I've been guilty of this, basically equating the word traditional with bad practice. And I don't think traditional practice is is necessarily bad. I think bad practice is bad. And I'll give you an example. For example, um, storytelling is probably the oldest teaching strategy in the world and is still relevant to this day. And so I think that some traditional practices work really well with our students as well, but we have to, it's all in pursuit of ensuring we do what's best for kids. And so I know Katie can talk a little bit about, you know, the failure portion and, and why that matters. Yeah, we always, you know, we, we talk about one of the things I always say is that like, you know, it's success is really 
you know, a journey of how you get from micro failure to micro failure that, you know, anything worth achieving is worth achieving in part because it's a little bit out of reach. Um, And so, you know, the things that we aspire to accomplish, the things we aspire to know are things that in some way are, you know, held up at the top of this, this journey. And if they were easy to get, it wouldn't be nearly as rewarding to get them. And so, you know, when you have people like, you know, I, I, I ran a marathon um, last October and it was like, you know, I was a cross country runner for me running five, 10 miles wasn't that big of a deal. And it was like, you know, you want to choose a goal that's like out of your reach because then it, it means something. And and we want the same thing to happen in, in classrooms. But the reality is, is when you aspire to do something that is hard to do, there will not be a really linear, clean journey to that. And that is okay. And if you talk to anybody training for a marathon, you know, they're going to have days that it's like pouring or snowing and you're like, I don't want to go out there or that you have blisters or that you pull a muscle or that you, you know, your, your fueling, your refueling strategy isn't working or the time you ran out of water and had to like walk back, you know, those things, some people could look at them and say, this isn't worth it anymore. And those people who keep going are in in some ways overcoming failure. And we're not talking about these big, epic failures, but you know, rather that every success is made up of a lot of micro failures. It's made up of a lot of choices to do the thing that's harder. And we want to encourage students to see that because, you know, one of the things when you teach seventh grade, um, seventh grade ELA I taught for, you know, almost 10 years. When when you teach seventh graders and you ask them what they want to accomplish, many of them want to be professional athletes. Um, and it's because being a professional athlete is is this such an incredible, incredible reach. Um, and, and we want students to reach for those things. And, you know, maybe they never become the professional athlete, but do they, they enjoy, you know, um, being a, in college intramurals? Like, do they get the best they can at any sport? And, you know, those, those people who do end up. So one of my seventh grade students is actually one of the best players in the NHL right now, which is kind of fun, uh, Jack Eichel. And, you know, how many times did he probably say, you know what, maybe this isn't actually going to happen for me. And then it did. So it's, it's, that's what we try to say to teachers is, you know, keep going, keep going, keep going. And if you don't get exactly where you want to be, you sure as heck are going to get a lot further than if you didn't try. Yeah. And, you know, Again, it's it's becoming a little cliche, I think, to talk about an education about failure being a first attempt in learning. But uh, it's definitely thematic through what you guys say and and your experiences and your uh, your your knowledge and your thoughts in the book. Uh, actually, one of the things that I appreciated that you wrote in there, uh, dealing with risk and failure, was even the mention of like failure portfolios. And and I had heard that somewhere recently. And then when I read it, I was like, oh my god, is this really becoming a thing? But um, I get the the concept of it, and it sounds kind of silly to like literally put all your failures like down on paper, maybe. But uh, it is important to keep those things in mind. And and as you guys talked about even early on in our conversation here, and as you discussed throughout the book, you each had op- uh, had experiences that. Things didn't go so well for you, but you uh, you pers- you know you persevered, you pushed through it, and now you're better for it. And so, obviously, that's what we hope for in our teachers and our students. As we wrap up, is there uh, anything that I have neglected to ask you, or that you really wanted to let the listeners know about the book, or, or anything that you needed to to really get in there that uh, you wanted them to know about the book? I think the just kind of building on what you just said, um, the the book came out. Um, of a connection that Katie and I had just kind of seeing how UDL and really Katie brought this to my attention, you know, how UDL just 
totally tied into the notion of the innovator's mindset. And the whole premise of the book is that we wanted to create something that really empowered and inspired educators to try something different, but we wanted to make it practical and something you could just, you know, read all at once, or you could kind of go back and reference to, to give you some ideas. And so um, the, the thing that I really appreciate about uh, Katie and what she brought to this whole process is um, just all the, it's amazing all the ideas that she has that still tie into the curriculum, tie into the work that we're doing. Um, but, and she makes them so accessible. And we were actually just talking about um, part of the process and Katie really helped me make it aware is that when we talk about removing barriers um, for students, it's actually not just the teacher doing it, but actually teaching the students how to actually remove barriers so that they can find their success, you know, as I said, not only in school, but later on in life. And so uh, really proud of how this turned out because we, we, we do tell a lot of stories because um, we know how hard it is to read, you know, some education books that um, they're, they, 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 they might challenge your thinking, but they're hard to get, you know, to read. And we want to make this something you could literally read on the beach and just kind of be enjoyable, you know, make you smile a little bit, challenge you, make you, you know, um, you know, maybe some, a few tears here and there, but also something that's really accessible to give teachers ideas um, in the context of the work that they do. And I think that's something that we really strive for. And the feedback we're getting so far is incredible. Well, uh, I have gone a lot longer than I usually do. Like I said, before we started, that is fine by me. And it's the first opportunity that I had to bring on multiple guests. And I really appreciated reading the book. And I really appreciate what you guys have had to say on here and just giving me the time to come on. Uh, of course, I would recommend, highly recommend the book to uh, my listeners. If you haven't yet gotten a chance to pick up Innovate Inside the Box, uh, please go out there and, and get it. Let them know, please, George and Katie, where they can find you, where they can find the book and get more information on the things that we've discussed here. Well, you can find you can find me uh, on Instagram and Twitter at G Kuros. Uh, the book's on Amazon. Um, and so I know Katie will share where you can connect with her. Yeah, I'm uh, at Katie. Uh, no, I'm, I'm at Katie Novak UDL. That's my Twitter handle. And my website is NovakEducation.com. Beautiful. Thank you guys so much once again. And I know that my listeners got a lot out of what you had to say. I appreciate your time and uh, I look forward to hearing what everyone has to say about when they read the book. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Ed. Thanks so much. My thanks, George and Katie, for taking the time to come on and speak to me and tell our listeners about this book. It really is a great read and I would highly recommend it to you if you haven't read it yet. And also, if you're not connected with George or Katie, please find them on Twitter or look up their websites. George is at G. Kuros. Katie is at Katie Novak UDL. Amazing and inspirational educators. Please catch us again in two weeks as I release episode 53. And that episode will feature an author of another recently published book, Dr. Dave Schmidto, author of the book Bold Humility. We had a great discussion about that book and just what it really means to be humble as an educator and learn from failures and move forward and push through adversity and times of challenge. So thanks for tuning in to episode 52, and I'll catch you next time on episode 53. 
Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't done so yet, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite way to listen. Also, if you like what you heard, please recommend this podcast to other educators, leaders, friends, or anyone you think would love listening and learning. And don't hesitate to leave a positive review on iTunes or whatever service you use to listen. For more information, head over to leaderoflearning.com. There you can also find the Leader of Learning blog, ways to connect on social media such as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Voxer, sign up for our newsletter, and even how to purchase Leader of Learning merchandise. Thanks again, and remember, no matter who you are or where you are, you too can be a Leader of Learning. The Edumatch Podcast Network is proud to support this show and many others. Find out more at edumatchpn.com. The ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely of the individual podcaster.